2, where we will be focusing our attention for this period of our worship, 2 Peter chapter 2. So the reason that I am up here at this time is because this Sunday is the last time that Zach will be preaching for us, and so I wanted to give him the... uh, Make him the main attraction, I guess. Give him the uh, prime time of the uh, regular worship hour, which means that you get me right now. And so uh, I appreciate Zach uh, for being willing to do that and uh, looking forward to hearing from him uh, and uh, seeing what happens with him as he is uh, shortly to move away from us and begin uh, working in another place. Uh, but wanted to explain that. I also wanted to say before I get started, um, I want to remind you next Sunday... Uh, Our gospel meeting begins, and at this time, Lord willing, next Sunday, uh, Brother Phil Robertson from Florida, Gainesville, Florida, will be with us. Brother Phil was scheduled to be with us in our Bible workshop last year. He wasn't able to come. I believe he's been here in the past before I came, Uh, but uh, looking forward to him being here. He's preaching a series called Rules of the Spiritual Road, and uh, I know that those are going to be some good things for us to think about and listen to, and I just want us, for our part to be thinking about making plans to be here next week, Uh, of course, on Sunday in our regular worship, and then each night, Monday through Thursday at 7 o'clock. So I made these cards. Uh, The cards are so that you can easily take them and hand them out. They're not giant pieces of paper, uh, but that only works if you actually take them and hand them out, right? All right, so take them and hand them out. They're in the back on uh, on the credenza. Uh, So if you uh, can do that before you leave, grab some of those and uh, be thinking about who you want to invite and making your own plans to be here. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. 2 Peter 2 and verse 20 says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So in this section of his letter, Peter is talking about false teachers, and he is concerned about the impact that some people are going to have as teachers on God's people. But he also takes pains to look at the lives of the false teachers themselves. And he specifies, if you look at verse 20, he says, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state is worse for them than the beginning. He says these are people who really have known the truth and been cleansed from their sins, but now they go back. And he says it's worse for them now than if they had never known. And that's an interesting idea that we'll pursue a little later. But most of all, I think the the thing in the passage that sticks out the most is that disgusting image in verse 22, right? The dog returns to its vomit. That is a proverb, Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So what I want to do is just pursue that idea for a few minutes this morning. We're going to talk about the dog returns to his vomit. Now that is the I mean, that's just a sweet-looking dog, isn't it? I I felt bad. Sarah and I, we went back and forth because I found a picture of a dog actually going back to its vomit. I couldn't do that to you guys, make you stare at that for 30 minutes. Uh, It's a really disgusting picture. And uh, so let's just look at this dog and think the best about him. But the idea here is disgusting. The idea is that that's what dogs sometimes do. Okay? That 
after they get rid of whatever is in their stomach and upsetting them, sometimes they'll just go right back over to it and sniff it. Sometimes they'll get it all over them again. Just like a pig that's washed doesn't seem to have the sense to go back and get, uh, stay out of the, the mud the second time. Now, what's this image about? I know it's disgusting. It's intended to be disgusting. I think we need to understand that the image is there to make a point. And the point is that we can go back to the awful things that we used to be and used to do even after we know better, even after we've been cleansed. So my goal this morning is to lead us in a study of this passage because I want to ask the question, how do people get here? I think it's easy to look at them and say, well, you know, I'm not a false teacher. I don't do these kinds of things. I don't have these kinds of motives, but if we can look at the process by which this occurs, we can see how we might start down those roads and how we might end up where they do. So that's what we're going to ask this morning is just how do they get here? First, I want us to set our context a little bit. Look back in 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, Peter has been talking about sort of the origins of the Christian faith, the Christian religion. He says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So in terms of origins, this is something that comes from eyewitness testimony. It's not something we made up. He says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no prophecy comes of private interpretation, some versions say, or private origin, others say. The idea is we don't make prophecy up. It doesn't come from people. So if you have things that claim to be from God, but they're made up by man, then they're obviously not really from God. Prophecy comes from God, not from man. But, verse 1 of chapter 2, verse 1 of chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So just like there were false prophets back in the Old Testament, people who would come and they would prophesy for money, People would come and say whatever somebody wanted to hear. Sometimes they would even make up prophecies. These are false prophets. And he says, just like there were false prophets then, there will be false teachers among you. So chapter 2 is a warning and sort of a future expose of these false teachers. So how do the false teachers get to where they are? Let's start with this. First, they return to their sin. They go back to things that they used to do before they became Christians. Look in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So they deny the master who bought them, he says in verse 1. That means they are Christian false teachers. They are people who claim to serve Jesus, yet in practice they deny the master who bought them. He talks about in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. That's a word that has to do with living according to the senses. It usually has sexual overtones to it. So they have gone back to this, and then they are leading others to live in that same way. Then he says, verse 9, look down in verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. 
So you see that they indulge in the lust of defiling passions. They've gone back to things that they know Jesus doesn't want them to be and to do, but they now are engaged in them again, and they're encouraging others to do it. It gets worse. Look in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So they revel, which has that idea of, you know, they're, they're excited to be able to do wrong. They take pleasure in it. It's something that they are, you know, they're proud of it. So not only that, they take wrongdoing and they see the good in doing wrong. Because they say, I can sometimes get gain from wrongdoing. There's some pleasure to it, and maybe there's even some money to it. In verse 18, for speaking loud, boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So they are, again, the word he uses is slaves of corruption. So you got all that. I know we just read a lot, okay? You get that picture. It is a picture of people not who are just struggling and sometimes they lapse into sin. You know, you make a mistake. I'm trying to do right, but I messed up here. These are people who are entangled again and overcome, it says in verse 20. They have gone back. They are now a part of what they have forsaken. So you can see the picture, the dog going back to its vomit, applying in a very real way to them. Or the sow having washed, going back to wallowing in the mire. He's saying they've gone back to their sin, and that leads them down a path where not only are they going to corrupt themselves, but they're going to start to corrupt other people around them. That's the point. So let, let's, let's stop a minute and process this, because I believe we understand, I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway, but I believe we understand that all Christians still struggle with sin. We have left behind a life that we used to have. There has been a bright line between where we were and where we are, and yet those voices call to us. The, the things we used to do and enjoy, the people we used to be around, the ways we used to think. And sometimes that call pulls us back so that we lapse into some of those old behaviors. But Peter is not describing people who are simply weak and struggling. He is describing people who have gone wholesale back into that old way of life. And they, practically speaking, have denied the Lord who bought them. And I want to stress especially, Peter is not saying that they were never saved. That somehow that was all fake. In fact, he says specifically they have been cleansed. He says in verse 20, they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord. So this is real. They have been washed. They have gotten rid of their sin. And now they're going back to their sin. This is instead returning to sin. So... That's not the whole course, though, of how they become these false teachers. Second, they justify their sin. Isn't it an interesting thing? We usually don't just go into sin. We usually start to talk about and create a narrative as to why it's okay for us to do what we're doing. We make up justifications. Look in verse 2 of 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2 and verse 2, it says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
So many will follow their sensuality, it says, and the way of truth will be blasphemed. But I want you to take some of what we've been talking about, keep those phrases in mind, and I want us to look at a parallel passage. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that 2 Peter 2 is very closely parallel to the epistle of Jude. So I want to take just a moment and look at Jude, because Jude is going to help us understand what exactly is going on. I want you to read Jude 4 with me, and as we read Jude 4, I want you to hear some of the echoes of what we read in 2 Peter 2. It says, Jude 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So certain people have crept in, he says in 2 Peter, they're secretly brought in. And it also says in Jude, look carefully at verse 4, they pervert the grace of our God. So they are teaching grace as a cloak for sensuality. They are saying the reason what we're doing is okay is because of grace. Now, grace is the idea that God will forgive us even when we don't deserve it. And grace is a biblical truth. But there are warnings throughout the New Testament about don't presume on God's grace or don't continue in grace, continue in sin that grace may abound because there are ways we can try to take advantage of the grace of God. That's exactly what they're doing. They're using grace as a cloak. They justify sin and they justify not being too concerned about sin by talking a lot about grace. That still happens today. That is the part of the teaching of Calvinism that is popularly known as once saved, always saved. In their terminology, it's the perseverance of the saints. One adherent of that teaching said this. After someone has become a Christian, he says, all the sins that a Christian may commit from idolatry to murder will not make his soul in any more danger. Do whatever you want. Now, you probably shouldn't. I'm not sure they would encourage it, but, but it doesn't really matter. Grace covers you so that whatever you want to do is now justified. It's not that this is going to make people sin. It's that it's going to justify their sin. And that's the problem here with these false teachers. Go back with me to 2 Peter 2. It's not just grace. 2 Peter 2 and verse 18 also says that they use the buzzword of freedom. 2 Peter 2 and verse 18, it says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So they're using freedom. We are free. And freedom is another New Testament concept. We have been set free from the law of Moses. We're free from our sin. We're free to live in Christ. Live as free men. Yet the warnings come in the New Testament. Don't use freedom as a cloak for vice. Don't uh, forget to serve one another in your freedom. Or don't use your liberties to become a stumbling block for others. Those are warnings in the New Testament. But if you have freedom as your buzzword, then when someone challenges you and says, hey, should you be doing that? You say, hey, I'm free in Christ. Are you some kind of legalist? And so there becomes a challenge that justifies our behavior. So not only do they return to their sin, but they then have justifications for why it's almost God's will that I sin. And that's the path they go down. Now, let me just say, those are the justifications that Peter talks about here. There are many more. Sometimes we argue about a specific sin, and we say, you know what, it's not really that bad. And we start to say, this is the reason why this is sometimes justified. Or sometimes we might even say, you know, when the New Testament talks about it, it's not really talking about my problem. 
There was a specific context and situation for them, but see, that doesn't really touch me as if somehow the New Testament doesn't have anything to say to us today. But those justifications, whatever they may be, we need to see them for what they are. When we're saying sin is okay, we are on the path of these false teachers. We are on the, will, on the way to disobeying the will of the Lord. The third thing that happens here is that they become proud. I want to call your attention to a thread in this text that has to do with despising authority. Look in verse 10, 2 Peter 2 and verse 10. 2 Peter 2 and verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in power and might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. So they despise authority. They are bold and willful. They're not afraid to blaspheme, afraid to blaspheme the glorious ones. That's a term that, that might mean angels, might even mean divine beings like God. But even angels have respect for those over them, Peter says, but not these people. They're too good for that. I don't have to respect anyone or anything. They are like irrational animals. They just blaspheme. They presume to speak about things that they don't know anything about. They have no humility. In verse 18, it says that they speak loud boasts of folly. Everybody battles with pride, every single one of us. But it is a step from battling with sin and justifying our sin to disrespecting authority. Because essentially what we're saying is nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Everybody is subject to me instead of me being subject to them. There are symptoms of this all over our society where we have no respect for people who are in authority over us or even for the idea that someone might have the right to tell us this is what you should and should not do. Shoulds, moral authority. And so it is very easy for us to buy into the narrative that no one should have any authority and we can see the flaws in whoever is over us and we can say, I don't have to submit. Submission, though, is a biblical New Testament Christian idea that we have to submit to other people and, of course, all of us must submit to God. Perhaps most intriguing to me is that this kind of pride appeals to people. I mean, you have a market for this in our time. Have you guys watched the... Uh, I've been watching these lately. I run on the treadmill at a certain time of day in the late afternoon. ESPN is on, and it's just people arguing. And they don't, they, you know, whatever it is, they, they can find things to argue about because as long as they're brash and bold and have some strong opinion, they're going to be on TV. People want to watch people who are bold and willful. That's what we want to see. And it's amazing to me that that whole idea, that whole way of thinking is what sells in our culture. But the danger for us is that we begin to buy into that for ourselves and say, no one has the right to tell me what to do. How do they get here? They return to their sin, they justify their sin, they become proud, and then they gain a following. They gain a following. Look in verse 2 of 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2 and verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow, and then because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Isn't it amazing? Satan tends to do this and work this way. That yes, people like this who have a corrupt vision of what Christianity should be, 
they become successful, and then other people see the flaw in it. And so it has a blaspheming effect. So other people see, well, if that's what Christianity is, if it's just this reprobate lifestyle with grace and freedom painted all over it, then I don't want any part of that. And so people look at the abuses sometimes that happen in Christian churches, and they say, if that's Christianity, no thanks. And Satan exploits those so that God is blasphemed. Part of the appeal of these people is that they seem to be legit. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. They exploit. Verse 13 says they feast with the brethren. They entice unsteady souls. And they seem to prey on those who are weaker. Look at verse 18, 2 Peter 2, 18. It says they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. You know, the weak, the ones who are just barely getting by, they are the target. They're the ones who are ripe for them. So they gain a following as they live in sin and justify their sin and become bold and proud in their sin. So what Peter does is he says that whole process, let's just talk about it as one unit and say they have become enslaved again or entangled again or they have turned back from the commandment or they have returned to their vomit. So what does Peter conclude about that? Well, there are two things he concludes. The first is that judgment is coming on these people. Can I just show you this real quick? Look at verse 1. I think you'll be amazed at how many times he says this. It's the reason I'm kind of smiling. 2 Peter 2 and verse 1 says, They are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 3 says, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10 says, Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 12, it says, They are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They will also be destroyed in their destruction. Verse 13, Suffering wrong is the wage for their undoing. Verse 14, they are accursed children. Verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. I mean, how many times can he say it? Do you notice? He wants the Christians to know that this movement is not going to go unpunished by God. God knows how to punish. In fact, there is a long section that we didn't even study this morning, verses 4 to 9. It's just one sentence where he says God knows how to preserve the godly and reserve the ungodly for punishment. And that's what we are hoping for, right? That God knows how to take care of us when we're trying to be faithful and also to judge those who are unfaithful. So the point here is if we are the ones who return to our vomit, if we are the ones who go back to our sin, if we are the ones who are encouraging other people to do wrong, then we will face judgment as well. And then Peter also says it would be better for them to never know. Look down in verse 20 with me. This is sort of the the question that drew me to this text for this week. Verse 20 says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. The last state, he says, is worse than the first. 
There is a little story Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 12 about a man who has a demon, and the demon is cast out. And then a little later, the demon comes back to the man and discovers that basically the man is ready for demon inhabitation again, and he brings seven of his friends along. And then Jesus concludes that little story and says, the last state of that man is worse than the first. Would have been better just to have one demon than to have seven, right? So, Jesus is making a point that sometimes just because this great cleansing and purification happens doesn't mean it's going to be permanent. And when things happen after that kind of thing where they get worse, then it might have been better for them never to have the demons cast out in the first place. It might have been better for them to never know the way of truth. So, verse 21 specifies it would have been better to never know. Why would it be better? Well, it would have been better for them to never know, wouldn't it? Than to know and then leave behind the gospel and then wreak the havoc they've been wreaking with this perverted version of the gospel. Wouldn't that be better than leading these people astray, living in their condemnation, painting it with grace and freedom, acting as if this is the truth? It would have been better for them to never know. It would have been better for everybody else involved. And evidently would have been better for them as well. Maybe it would have been better because if they had never known, they at least had the possibility of changing from the state they were in. How likely are they to change now? When they already know the truth of the gospel and they've turned away from it decisively. How likely are they to be appealed to by the message again? But... I think perhaps the answer is just right in front of us with Jesus' parable from Matthew 12. Perhaps what they are now infested with is worse than what was there before. Perhaps their sin is even worse now. All right, well, I've got some questions for us, just some things to think about. I don't think it's a worse heaven or not. I think it's instead it's worse for them now. I think their sin is worse. I think they're in a worse place because they're farther from God. So there's a less likelihood that they'll ever respond to the gospel now. And so, you know, it's a worse state for them now. But I, I don't think it's heaven or hell kind of thing because I think in both cases they're lost. So I think you're right about that. All right, so questions for us. Just some things to think about as we try to apply this text and think about ourselves. First, whom do we follow? I think there is a strong warning in this text about being too committed to any human. People can encourage us, people can teach us, people can help us, but we don't follow people. I want you to notice verse 19 with me. Look at verse 19. They promised them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Can a person free us when they are enslaved? Can you receive something from someone when they don't have it themselves? So what, what we're being taught here is a lot like what Jesus says when he says, by their fruits you'll know them. That we need to be able to look at the lives of those we listen to and follow and say, is this matching up? Is this somebody I want to follow? It's one of the reasons why when we see qualifications for elders, 
their lives are a part of the qualification. We want to know what kind of people they are. Are they the examples we want to follow? Hebrews says, follow their faith in talking about them. So if that's the case, then we have to be able to say, well, they're not offering me something they don't have themselves. I want to follow them. But as Jesus says, can the blind lead the blind? If they're blind, we can't hope to gain anything from following them. The passage warns us against following charismatic people or intellectual people or people with unique ideas without considering whether they're really speaking for Jesus. That's the warning here. The second question, what makes teaching true? The only thing that makes something worth listening to in a spiritual context is whether the words match with what's in Scripture. That's the validating principle. So let me help clarify that. That means teaching is not true just because it makes sense to me. It might make sense, might not. That doesn't make it true or not true. Teaching is not true because it appeals to me or makes me feel better. In fact, it is usually the opposite. Usually truth makes us feel worse, at least until we submit to it. Teaching is not true because it comes from someone I know or someone I feel I can trust. That's not the validating principle. Now, I should be able to trust those who teach me, but that's not what makes something true. Teaching is not true just because someone is bold and confident. Remember, teaching is used in this context to justify sensuality and adultery, and it uses Bible words in unbible ways, words like freedom and authority and grace. Sometimes it seems to me that we are impressed by people who are big and loud and have strong opinions, and we say, whoa, we are impressed by the force of their personality. And we have to remember, we're going to stand before God, not on the strength of someone else's personality, but whether or not we've actually done the will of the Father. That's what makes things true. And then the final question is, have I gone back? Each of us has left behind a life of sin. But the question is, have we allowed that old man to resurrect a little bit? Have we lessened our view of the seriousness of sin? You know, it's not as big a deal. You know, it's been a long time since I was that person. Have I allowed people to influence me to accept more and more, to get a little further from where Jesus teaches me to be? Can I see a bright line between where I am and where I used to be? Now, I am not saying, and I hope you know this, that every time we sin or make a mistake, we're the dog returning to his vomit. We're lost again every time we sin. I am saying we start down a road away from God that Peter warns us about. So there's something disgusting here. The dog returns to his vomit. The warning is for us, though, not just to be disgusted, not just to make a point about once saved, always saved. The warning is don't let that be you. Thanks so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.